Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. So brethren, do you remember that we are going through the book of Acts? I think I forget when we started it. Um, but maybe I'll start by asking, does anybody remember anything about the book of Acts? <laughs> remember we did chapter 1? Any any insights or memories from what we covered in chapter 1? It's it's open book, so you can you can look at So who's the author of the book of Acts? Luke. And is the book of Acts his first book? No. Okay, so what other book did he write? The book, the Gospel of Luke. So so Acts is really the second volume of a two-volume work. So the first volume, we said, was he, he was writing. And, and Luke was, what was his um, occupation? He was a physician and, and very knowledgeable, very educated, um, very accurate, very precise. Also, he's the only Gentile to author the Bible. Uh, the Bible is written by Israelites, uh, Luke being the one exception. But very accurate, very precise man. And he undertook the project of writing, first of all, a volume about what Jesus, he says, began both to teach and do. Volume two is really a continuation of what Jesus began to do. So, so everything we see in the book of Acts is Jesus Christ now governing his body, which is the church. And so the church is his body carrying out, continuing the acts that he began when he was here in, incarnate in the flesh. Then we saw at the end of the chapter that he chose, or they, Peter uh, proposed that they choose a, an apostle to replace Judas. And they chose Matthias. They did lots and they chose Matthias. What they didn't do was cast lots to see if they should be choosing at all. What they, they just decided it's their place to choose a replacement. And they chose Matthias. And what I, what I put forward then, and it's not doctrine, it's just a proposition, that God was not a part of that. That was just men deciding. We need a replacement. They chose Matthias. And the scripture does not support that choice. Matthias is never mentioned. Luke makes no effort to talk about Matthias again. Instead, he spends the, the bulk of this volume talking about the Apostle Paul, who I proposed is, the real, is God's designed replacement for Judas. And so that's where we finished with Acts 1. But there is something that I want to pull out of Acts 1 before we start on Acts 2. And if you go there... And it's in verse 3, beginning verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. So this is Luke writing, saying there was just so much proof, and the proof was infallible that Jesus Christ came back to life. Being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So these 40 days are in the count between the wave sheaf and Pentecost. So as they're counting towards Pentecost, Jesus Christ is there for 40, 40 days of those 50 days instructing them about the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. So it, it was his instruction, Jesus Christ himself was instructing them that they had to remain in Jerusalem. And rather than departing from Jerusalem, they were to wait for the promise of the Father, which, says he, you have heard of me. Now, that's the beginning of Acts. Compare that with the end of volume 1. So Acts is volume 2. Look at uh, Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse 44. And he said unto them, 
These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witness of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but wait you in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So right here we see in this passage that Christ is telling them, I'm going to use you to preach the gospel to all nations. But you're going to start with Jerusalem, and I'm going to give you the power to do this. But wait in Jerusalem until you receive that power. When you receive the power, then it's time to go. Okay, let's go back to Acts 1. In verse 6, <clears throat> when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So they know that something powerful is going to happen in Jerusalem. They're going to receive this power. And their question is, is this the time for the restoration of the kingdom? And he basically tells them, uh, that don't worry about that. But when you do receive power, verse 8, that's when you'll be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this passage really acts as a table of contents. So as we read the book of Acts, what we're going to see is they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. They're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. From there, they're going to go to Judea. Then they're going to go through all Samaria. And then finally, you're going to see the Apostle Paul come online and he's going to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that's how the book of Acts is structured. So let's go now to Acts 2. And beginning in verse 1. So, so Christ was with them from the wave sheaf for 40 days, instructing them about the kingdom of God. They're expecting that when they receive this power, the kingdom of God will be restored. So they're waiting now another 10 days before Pentecost actually comes. And we pick that up in verse 1 of chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, so just like us, we're now the third week of seven Sabbaths. We're in the count. They were in the count. And now they've come to the full realization of the 50 days. They were all with one accord in one place. So Christ was teaching them for 40 days. They were all in one accord. There, there, there was no division here. And suddenly, on this 50th day, all of a sudden, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. So this was the first thing that they noticed was this sound that was just powerful. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And notice this verse 3. So, so this Christ promised that they would receive power. This is now the receipt of that power that they were waiting for. But notice how it comes. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues. So I, and I just want to emphasize tongues here. That the power that they receive is, you know, it wasn't like all of a sudden they were ripped. And they had six packs and biceps and this is the power that they had, right? Or suddenly they were equipped with, with military power. No, the power that they were equipped with was tongues, speech, the spoken word. This is the power that, they, they, that they have been given, and this is the power that we will see uh, really take hold as they preach the gospel. So they were given, uh, or, or cloven tongues came upon them, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. So everybody that was there was meant to be there. I mean, imagine if you're there, and there's cloven tongues on everybody except me. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. You're an imposter, right? Uh, no, everybody that was there was there by design, was there by God's will. And that was confirmed because every single person had this miracle of a tongue of fire that sat upon them. And they were all, every one of them, filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is that power. This is the promise. 
and they began immediately. The first thing or the first order of business is to speak. It is to speak. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I I don't need to spend a lot of time here for our congregation. Maybe if it was other congregations, I would have to. But this is certainly not the Pentecostal concept of speaking in gibberish, which is a truly satanic phenomenon. And it's not limited to Christianity. You can go to India and watch the Hindus do this. You can go to Africa and watch the Voodooists do this. Uh, it, was, it was being done here in, in the Middle East uh, before uh, the, the church was even founded. So, so speaking, re- receiving a, a supernatural force and then speaking in gibberish, that's got nothing to do with this. That's got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And I know I don't need to spend time on that for our congregation. This was the miracle of speaking in foreign languages. So they began to speak with other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Why would they do that? Well, verse 5 tells us. Because there were dwelling at Jerusalem at that time. This is, these are the holy days. So, so Jews were coming to Jerusalem. Devout men, men who are concerned about observing the, the uh, Feast of Weeks and the, days, the day of Pentecost. These Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. So the tribe of Judah had dispersed all over the place. But on the holy days, they come back to Jerusalem. So so they were coming from every nation under heaven. Verse 6. Now when this was noised abroad, so you can imagine this kind of spectacle. There's this house, there's this rushing mighty wind, they're speaking in different languages. When this was noised abroad, the multitude came together. Everybody went, what's going on? So it's, it's quite an attraction. So all the multitude comes, and they were confused. Because when they came, they're coming from all different nations. They come together to this house to see what's going on. And they're confused because every man heard them speak in his own language. So, so the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give them utterance so that there can be understanding. It's not that they're given the, the Holy Spirit to be a spectacle. And we all come together and we see them rolling around on the floor and we have no clue what they're saying. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is about preaching the gospel so that the hearers can understand it. Faith comes by hearing. So the people who are hearing the gospel need to understand it so that they can respond to it. But because of the Tower of Babel, we're all speaking different languages. So this is now undoing the curse of Babel. And now we can preach the gospel and everybody, regardless of nation, can hear. I shouldn't say regardless of nation. Regardless of language. Because at this time, there is only one nation. And that's Israel. The gospel, or the covenant, is for Israel. No Gentiles here. The, the, co- the, the, the covenant has not yet been opened up to Gentiles. Notice it is Jews from all nations. So the Jews are speaking different languages. And the gospel is being preached to the Jew first, eventually to the Gentile, but Jew first. So every language, they're able to hear the gospel so that they can respond to it. So they all come together, verse 6, they're confused, they're hearing it their own language, and they were all amazed and marveled. This was something really miraculous. They, they just couldn't believe it. Saying one to another, so probably when they're coming together to worship, Uh, It's possible that they're all speaking Greek so that they can understand one another. But maybe if you spoke a certain language and you didn't know Greek, that you just couldn't understand some of your brethren. You you know you're all keeping the holy days. You're all there to observe. You just, some people you can't understand. It's just like us if we go to the feast and there are brethren that only speak French. We can smile. Maybe we could get out a bonjour and that's about it. But we know they're brethren. We just can't communicate with them. But if somebody started preaching... And they're right beside us. And they're hearing the gospel just as we're hearing the gospel. And there's somebody that only speaks Chinese and they're hearing the gospel. And all of us, even though we're all Christians, we just speak different languages. And we're all hearing the gospel. They're amazed. And marveled. And said one to another, Behold, are not all these 
which speak Galileans? So we don't get this. Uh, Galileans are uneducated. How is it that we have Galileans who are speaking to all of us as if they are schooled in our language? How hear we every man in our own language wherein we were born? So, so notice that these Jews have spread out and their communities are in these different nations and people are born speaking these other languages. They're not speaking Hebrew. Uh, maybe they are speaking some Greek because Greek was the language at the time. But they're speaking the language of the land. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, Cappadocia in Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes, and notice this, Arabians. I won't talk about Islam now, but I will say that Prophet Muhammad was exposed to Christianity and the truth of the gospel because there were Arabians here, or, or Jews that were Arabians, they lived in Arabia, and they came to Jerusalem, and then they took the gospel back to Arabia. It got perverted there, and then that's how Prophet Muhammad got, or the Islam Prophet Muhammad got exposed to the gospel, or to Christianity out in Arabia. How is it that we do hear them speak in our tongues, in our languages, the wonderful works of God? So that was the purpose of receiving this, this miracle, so that they could hear the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what does this mean? It, this was really something. They, they couldn't believe it. They're, they're trying to figure out with each other, what is this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine." But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. And maybe just before we go into his words, I'll just pause here and see if there are any thoughts or comments or questions about the passage that we've covered so far. Ethan. I'm kidding. <laughs> Wonderful to have you here. Um, any thoughts or comments on that? Yes? We're living in Jerusalem. Um, even in uh, chapter 1, it says the same thing in uh, verse 19. Uh, it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. They were people who had been born in the other countries and they were like the diaspora and they had now came back to Jerusalem to make their home uh, possibly because of messianic expectations hard to say but uh, that was one could be um, dwelling could also mean that they're there for the feast period so so they're living there for the feast period and they're in the feast of weeks so I, I don't disagree with you um, it, it seems to me though that it would make sense to me that for the high days that they're going to attract devout men to come and worship for the high days and be in the count uh, for the high days. So from the days of unleavened bread right through to Pentecost, do their offerings and then go back. So it could be either way. I just, I just want—I think maybe the Greek word is implying though someone who's actually set up. They're not just sojourners or mm -hmm. whatever. So possible. I think the the miracle. I think if they were living there, then it would be easier just to speak one language. And this is, you know, we're all speaking Hebrew or we're all speaking Greek, so I'm going to preach the gospel. I think if they're coming from their land and they're immersed in their language in their land and then they come in their little posse to Jerusalem and they can communicate with each other but not necessarily with others, to then hear the works of God preached in their language I think that the impact of that would be something. But I, I, I can't disagree with you. Other thoughts? Yeah, so that's, I think that's certainly possible. 
Okay. Uh, just one thing yes. uh, you were saying. Oh, well, the scripture says that people from all over uh, the world, the known world at the time, uh, the Jews, all appeared. Would they have been uh, the lost tribes that Jesus said he came for? I came for the lost house of Israel. I'm just wondering because uh, there are Jews from all over that may have been part of the tribes that got dispersed. Uh, again, I can't say no, but what I would say, Brother Ray, is that the, the Assyrians were very thorough uh, in their work. And so when they came to destroy Israel, they destroyed Israel. And they were very, their, their policy was to completely compromise people genetically. So, so their, their, their uh, foreign policy when they take over would be to obliterate these people, take them out of the land, uh, mix them with other genetic codes, and dis disperse them. So I think lost means lost, that they themselves don't know who they are. And I think here we're talking about the tribes of Levi, Judah, and Benjamin, who are devout. They, they are keeping the, the word of God, the commandments of God. They know who they are. They are coming to Jerusalem to keep the feast. I think... The nations of Israel that are lost, God knows who they are. I don't think they know who they are. And I think God will gather them according to his prophecy. But I don't, I don't necessarily see them here. But I'm not in a position to say absolutely not. It, it could be. Thank you. Okay. Okay, let's go back to Acts 2. And we're in verse 12, they're confused. And they're trying to figure out what this means. In verse 13, some are mocking. And then in verse 14, Peter stands up with the 11. And he raises his voice. So he's speaking with conviction now. Maybe he's shouting. He's serious. I want you to compare this to Luke 22. Let's go to Luke 22. verse 54 this is just before Christ was crucified they then took they him verse 54 speaking of Christ and led him and brought him into the high priest's house and Peter followed afar off so Peter is interested in what's happening but he doesn't want to get too close to be associated with Christ verse 55 and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together Peter sat down among them. So he's trying to figure out what's going on. He figures it's safe now to be in the mix. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him. So she's recognizing him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You are also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour, and about the space of one hour after another, confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. So that's the proof. He's a Galilean. Here he is. He must have been with him. And Peter said, Man, I know not what you say. And immediately, while he yet spoke, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. So here we have a Peter. Let's go back to Acts 2. But here we see a, the character of Peter where he's interested in Christ. He's concerned about Christ, but not so much that he's willing to be hurt himself. So he would throw Christ under the bus to save his own skin. So here's somebody who's very concerned about his survival to the point where he adamantly denies that he had anything to do with Christ three times. Now, in Acts 2, we have all of these powerful people who put Christ to death. All of them are assembled together. And Peter shows absolutely no fear at all. In fact, he is shouting at them. He has complete conviction here in Acts 2, verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice 
and said to him, said unto them, you men of Judea, and again here perhaps is an answer, um, Brother Ray, that he's speaking specifically to the men of Judea. He doesn't say Israel. He says, you men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So he is using the Bible. He's preaching to them from the Bible. And they only had the, old, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So there was no New Testament. He's now going to preach to them from the scripture, the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days. So remember, the book opens up with them asking Christ, when we receive, we'll stay at Jerusalem. When we receive this power, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Christ said, it's not for you to know that. You just focus on being witnesses. But that's what's in their mind, that the kingdom needs to be restored to Israel. So he's now preaching that, hey, this is, this is what's spoken of by the prophet Joel. These are the last days. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Remember, everybody that was in the house had the tongue that sat on them. And everybody that was in the house was filled with the Holy Spirit. So if there were children there, wives, husbands, fathers, mothers, everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they're saying, are they drunk? No. This is what's spoken of by the prophet Joel. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord to come. In other words, this is happening now. The next thing to happen is the great day of the Lord. Get ready. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's just quickly go to Joel to see what else would be in the mind of Judea as they are hearing the scripture being quoted to them. And let's go to Joel chapter 2. So he is uh, preaching from Joel, and these are men that are well-versed with the scripture, so he just has to preach a section from Joel, and they'll pick up the rest of the context. But let's, let us pick up the rest of the context. Joel is pointing to the last day, and in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Blow the trumpet, blow you the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. So this is what they're hearing, that the day of the Lord is coming. This is it. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after that, even to the years of many generations. Dropping down to verse 12. Therefore also now, says the Lord, turn you even to me with all your heart. So this is part of the context of Joel. When, when Peter stands up and starts preaching to them from the prophet Joel, they know the context. And here's the context. The day of the Lord is coming. This is your final opportunity to repent. Therefore also, verse 12, now says the Lord, turn you even to me with all your heart, with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, 
and of great kindness and repents him of the evil. So the evil is coming, but this is a God that can be entreated. Who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing with him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. So when he's quoting from Joel, he's quoting from a prophet that is calling the nation to repentance. And, and before it's too late. This is the time. This is the last day. This is when God's judgment is coming. But if you repent and turn to him with all your heart, he's easily entreated. This is what they're hearing. Back to Acts 2. Acts 2 and verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. This this is the Peter that was afraid of them. This is the Peter that was afraid for his life. Now he's confronting them. And I think, brethren, as we go through this book of Acts, a, a couple of things that I would like us to be sensitive to. One is the church, for the most part, the apostles, are fearless. They are fearless. Yet yeah, they are confronting wicked men. They are confronting evil men. They do not back down from preaching the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is God. And we declare that with all authority. And we invite you to repent. But whether you repent or not, that's on you. We've done our part. With power, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we have declared the full truth of the gospel unto you. So that's one. Number two, we're going to see through the book of Acts that almost every chapter is filled with persecution. The church is a persecuted, it's a powerful church, but it's a persecuted church. And I think if we're, if we're coming into the church saying, before we preach the gospel, Let's check the weather and make sure the weather is fair. Let's make sure it's not raining outside. And if, if, if all conditions are right, then we'll preach the gospel. That's not what we see in the book of Acts. In fact, the conditions are anything but right. What is right is the gospel. And preaching the gospel doesn't depend on outward conditions. The third thing I'd like us to see as we read Acts is the church... While it's a community, a cohesive community, it is a working community. The church works. And and I'm concerned that the congregations in the church of God have become worship congregations, not working congregations. And when we read the the Acts here, we, we really see the model. The model before it gets corrupted. So this is the model as Christ intended it. So Luke wrote, Luke, first Luke, the Gospel of Luke, where he says, this is what Christ began to teach and do. And then he writes Acts to say, this is what Christ continued to teach and do. So in the book of Acts, we see Christ exercising his body according to his will. When we get into the epistles, And the other books, we see the church more or less off track, shipwrecked. We see problems in the church. But here we see the model. And the model is a congregation that is not only a cohesive community, it's a working community. It's given power to do work. And I think as a congregation, we need to embrace this mindset. I think we've spent two years, a wonderful two years, building a cohesive community. And that is right and appropriate and foundational. Now that we have a cohesive community, let's take our cue from the book of Acts. Let's take our cue from the early church and realize the reason we're a community is to do work, is to preach the gospel. If we're not working, then we're not working. The church isn't working. The church has to work to work. And, and we have to exercise the Holy Spirit without fear. And, and I will say, brethren, my view, 
the picnic is over. We've had a long picnic. It's been nice where we can get together on the Sabbath, bring some sandwiches, have a pot of coffee, and talk about the Bible. It's been nice picnic atmosphere. The sword is on the land. Might not come tomorrow. Mark my word, it's coming. And we need to look at how the brethren in the early church faced opposition, how they faced persecution, and how they did the will of God regardless of external circumstances. And I think that's how we have to prepare ourselves. Let's get to work. Let's do God's work, regardless of, regardless of who may uh, oppose it, wh- whose feelings may be hurt. We just have to preach the gospel. And that's what we see here. You men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. I'm not going to compromise this. I know the high priest is here. I know the Sanhedrin is here. I know the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, men of power and renown are here. Hear, all of you, hear these words. In fact, the same men that put Jesus to death are in the midst. Hear these words. We're not compromising. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken, and by lawless hands, by wicked hands, you've crucified and slain him. This uh, word wicked is animus, without law. You, you kind of could even imply that you did it through the Romans, through Gentile hands. But certainly you were, you were, law, you were uh, culpable whom God has raised up. So you killed him, but God has raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David, now he's going back into the scripture again, so first Joel, now we're going to go into the Psalms. For David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the law, the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. He is quoting here from Psalm 16. Uh, It's a short psalm, so let's just go there so we can get the full context. Psalm 16. Hold your place in Acts 2. Psalm 16. And again, they would know the full context when he's quoting a part of it. Preserve me, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you do I put my trust. So he has... has, uh, created a dichotomy here all you righteous men in your long robes you're on one side jesus christ is on the other one side is wicked one side is righteous one side has the approval of god the other side does not and so now he's quoting from david to say this is really speaking of christ preserve me O god for in you do i put my trust O my soul You have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness extends not to you. I believe that's the Gentiles, the the wicked. My goodness does not extend to the wicked, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. So again, they know the context that there's a dichotomy here. God's goodness extends to the saints and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their, their, their sorrows, the wicked, shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me 
because he is at my right hand, and I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. So he knows he's going down, but he knows that God will not leave his soul in Hades. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in the presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. So they would know this psalm very well. They would probably be able to recite it by heart. And they would believe that this is speaking of David. So now we come back to the sermon, Acts 2. Where Peter is now going to tell them what this means. Acts 2, verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. So his soul is in Hades, or his, his, yeah, his soul is in Hades, and he's in the grave, and his body has seen corruption. His flesh has seen corruption. So men and brethren, let me, let's, let's, let's be frank here. Let me speak freely of you of our patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. And his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this beforehand, was actually speaking of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not to be left in Hades. Neither was his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Every, all of there is over 500 people saw Christ go into the grave and Christ come up. So this psalm, you were thinking it's speaking of David. Here's David's sepulcher with us to this day. He was a prophet. He was actually speaking of the Christ that you crucified. Verse 31, he's seeing this before, was actually speaking of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not to be left in Hades, neither was his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. So you're now seeing that he... He received the Holy Spirit. He has shed it forth now. This, we're not drunk. These men are not drunk with wine. This is the action of Jesus Christ. This is Christ acting. He's been resurrected. He has the Spirit. He has now shed it into our hearts. That's what you're witnessing. So he's, they, they were wondering what's going on. He's telling them and he's using the Psalms to tell them. For David is not ascended into the heavens. But he says himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we have Christ on one side with his disciples and we've got you men of renown and power and prestige on the other who are the enemies of Christ. And I've shown you through the prophet Joel that the Holy Spirit will be shed in everyone. You're going to see it in the husbands, the wives, the children, the sons, the daughters. All flesh will be, will be filled with the Holy Spirit just before the end. Now is the time for you to repent and come to God with fasting and with weeping because he's merciful. Not only that, what you're actually witnessing is the resurrection of Christ and the shedding of his spirit. It's, it's Christ that has given the gift of the spirit to all of us. We're not drunk. This is what you're seeing. It's what the, the prophet David actually spoke of. Now he says, and it's really something. In the psalm it says, Sit you on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You put him to death. You are his enemies. You are about to be made his footstool. Look at Psalm 110.
Psalm 110, and again, they would know the whole passage. As soon as he quotes part of it, they would know the rest of it. Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, this is David speaking, but he said to them, look, David, David is not in, it has not ascended to heaven, but Christ has. And Christ is beside the Father. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of the strength out of Zion, rule you in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus Christ is a great king. He is the king of Israel. He is, he is the, the king that has been prophesied. You're the enemies of, of Christ. He's a king. And he's a king authorized by God the Father. And God the Father is saying, sit here until I make all your enemies your footstool. And he is speaking boldly to the enemies of Christ. Rule you in the midst of your enemies. The people shall be willing in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was a king and a priest. And, and he's saying this Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which means he is also a king, king of righteousness. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. So again, hearkening back to what Joel said, this is the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Back to Acts 2. So Peter's not pulling any punches. These are men who are righteous. These are the high priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And he's basically telling them, you men are wicked. You men are evil. You are the enemies of God. You are the enemies of Christ. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, you enemies of Christ. You crucified him, but God has made him both Lord and Christ and Messiah. Now, this, this is a powerful sermon. This is no, no sugarcoating here. This is the full truth, full on, no compromise. To the most powerful people in Judea. What's the response? Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Now, now everything has come together. It all makes sense now who Jesus was. The prophecies are clear. They're on the wrong side. Now, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We're on the wrong side. We thought we were on the right side. We thought we had all the power. We thought we could abuse Christ. We watched him. We laughed when they crucified him. And when, we, when they buried him, we thought that was that. Three days, three nights later, God resurrected him. His soul did not see corruption. And now we realize he's on the right hand of God. He is the one that has, has, has given the spirit to the disciples to enable them to preach this truth. And now we're understanding the prophecies in a way that we didn't before. We see Joel. We see the prophet David's prophecies. We, we know what's next. We know what's next. What should we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive, so it's not just us, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Joel said that he's compassionate, he's merciful. Repent. He's easily entreated. So what should you do? Repent of your sins, be baptized, and you'll receive the same gift that we've received. For the promise, it is a promise, this promise is unto you. This is a covenant for Israel. 
and you are Israel. So this promise is for you. Not just you, your children as well. This promise is for you and for your children. And to all that are afar off. So I think when they hear this, they would be thinking the rest of Israel that are afar off. But I think this is the first indication that the promise is going to be opened up to the Gentiles. They just wouldn't understand it this way at this time. So the promise is to Israel and to your children and to all that are afar off. Remember, the promise to Abraham is to be a blessing to the whole world, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day, this day of Pentecost, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And I think we'll, uh, we'll just go to Exodus 32, and then we'll stop here. I was hoping we'd get through all of Acts, but I want to give you some time to, uh, well, maybe we will get through. Let's see. Let's see how many questions you have. Exodus 32. Exodus 32, so here we see on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to the church and received the Holy Spirit. Here in Exodus 32 on the day of Pentecost, we see the opposite. Verse 22, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. So Moses had received the law on Pentecost and was coming down to share it with Israel and saw them worshiping the golden calf and, and corrupting themselves. So, verse 32, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. You know the people, that they are set on mischief. You, you, know, you know what they're like. For they said to me, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whosoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, And slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people on this day of Pentecost about 3,000 men. So it's just this contrast where basically really highlights the law brings death, the spirit brings life. So we saw in this passage where uh, Babel confused the languages, The day of Pentecost reversed that. And now we can communicate to everybody with, with one speech. Here we see as well, Pentecost brought death. With the Spirit, it brings life. So about 3,000 souls were, were actually given eternal life, the, the beginning of eternal life uh, here. I think I can just finish Acts 2, and then we can open it up for questions. Let's go to Acts, uh, back to Acts 2. So Acts 2, verse 42, so these, these um, 3,000 souls have been added. The church has been established. And verse 42, they continued steadfastly that this was serious. They were serious about their calling. They continued steadfastly in what? In the doctrine, in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine drives everything. You mess up the doctrine, you mess up everything. So they, were, they continued steadfastly in the doctrine and fellowship. So fellowship was a very important part of what they were doing, as well as in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So again, this is the model. This is the model that we want to follow. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Again, the church is being established, and the credibility of Jesus Christ is being uh, underwritten or supporting them in their work. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. So they, they, they were not about this world. They were not about amassing wealth in this world, using the gospel to, to gain wealth. 
No, they were all about serving, all about sharing, all about giving, all about following Jesus Christ's word. And they continued daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They had purpose, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So let's stop there, and we'll continue with Acts 3 next time. But any comments? Or Nice to see you, Brother Bernard any, and, and Craig. Um, any comments or questions or, or concerns about Acts 2? I'll give you a moment. Let it, let it sink in. Yes. Just wait for the mic so we... Thank you. Wonderful presentation. Uh, could you just say a bit more about the worship? As um, you mentioned that the, the New Testament church was more a working church than a worshiping church. Could you give us an idea of what the balance should be? Okay. I, I hope I didn't say that. Um, I think the church should be a worship church. Jesus Christ is to be worshipped. This, the, this uh, privilege that we have to know Jesus Christ, uh, he is to be worshipped. He, he deserves our worship. His, his name is to be above every name. My concern is, is the, the balance, as you said. Um, I think it should be 100% worship and 100% work. Right? God, Christ himself said, I work because my father works. And when he was on earth, he was busy. He was working all the time. Now we see his church or his body. He's now the head in heaven. The body is working. And, and my comment was really about as a culture. We, I, I, I don't think we work the same way. And, and maybe those of us who come through the worldwide heritage, that was a working church. But it was set up so that the work was done at the top. And, and we paid our tithes and offerings in so that the work could be done at the top. But we didn't have to work. And, and it was this monolithic organization that did tremendous work because it pooled all the resources. And the man and the men at the top could do this very profound work. That's gone. Now, now we're back to more of a local model. And, and there is no one church. And, and I would even go so far as to say there never was. Uh, there is Christ and the body of Christ. There's the head and the body. And if you have the Holy Spirit of God, you're part of the body, regardless of what physical organization you're in. But we certainly do not have this monolithic organization that can do everything for us and do, do, do great work for us. We're back to this model where the local congregations need to be doing the work and individuals need to be preaching the gospel. So the worldwide experience, I think, has trained us not to work, to, to send in our tithes and offerings and then watch and let other people work. Certainly, I, I'm guilty of that. And I think that when we look at the model, the brethren worked. And we're not, we're not here yet, but I, I did mention it on the last day. When, because of persecution, the church was scattered. In fact, let's just quickly look at Acts 8, just to answer this question. Acts 8, where we see the destruction and murder of, of Stephen. And verse 1, it says, Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. So they were all at Jerusalem because they were told to be there. Then there's this great persecution that comes upon them. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Notice this, except the apostles. So the apostles were not scattered. The brethren were scattered. Now look at verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, remember the apostles were not scattered, the brethren were scattered. Therefore, the brethren that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. This is the model. 
So, so we need to be equipped so that if persecution comes here and we need to separate, every one of us, well, let's just say that persecution came here and, and we had to separate, but Murray and I had to stay here. So, so the pastors have to stay here. They were all scattered except the pastors. And they that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So, so this is not a model where, oh, let, let someone else do it. This is a model where if you're a part of the body, you're expected to work. And so I think it's that, that complete commitment to worship and knowing who we worship, and he's our head, and then doing the work that our head wants us to do. I hope that answers the question. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.